As I thought about coming to preach tonight and what Peter was preaching on this morning, really these two sermons kind of hinge together simply as the introduction to uh, some far, far more significant points that will be made when we start thinking about what happened from the day of Pentecost and onwards. So this is really the second part of the introduction to the book of Acts, and I've called it Great Expectations. Our main theme, as we were told this morning, is, is going to be under the, the title of The Spreading Flame. Uh, but tonight we're thinking about preparing for the Spirit's coming. In our opening sermon in Acts this morning, we saw how Jesus had spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection, teaching them about the kingdom of God, or continuing to teach them about the kingdom of God. Now, after teaching the, G- the disciples about the kingdom, Jesus ascended into heaven where he sits on the throne, assuming all rule and authority and dominion and power. Two angels appeared to the disciples and told them that Jesus will return in the same way that he was taken up. And we have that hope even tonight as a church, that uh, maybe even before the end of the sermon, that Jesus will come back. And depending on how long I go on, some of you will be fervently praying that before the evening goes much further. But that's the reality. One day Jesus is coming back, and we don't know when. We just know that it's going to happen. So as we begin tonight's sermon, I want you to use your creative imagination that God has given you. And I want you to imagine that you're one of these disciples that has just seen Jesus ascend into heaven. What's your next action going to be? Imagine how strange it must have been to see Jesus leave in that way. And how strange it must have been to know that you were one of the disciples put in charge of spreading the good news of the kingdom of God to the very ends of the earth. What would you do next? How would you feel? Now Jesus has told you and the other disciples to wait in Jerusalem until he sends the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what you and they do. So then Luke picks up that story and tells us that the disciples obeyed their Lord's commandment and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. He tells us in Luke 24 verse 52. Now it's fairly possible and we can speculate a little bit maybe that they met in the upper room where the Last Supper had been celebrated. The Bible doesn't clearly say that, but I think there's room for a little bit of speculation there. But as well as meeting that room, they, they regularly went to the temple to pray and worship as well. We learn that from Luke 24, verse 53. Now, even prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, in power on the day of Pentecost, I want us to observe the remarkable change that's already taken place in the lives of those who have met the risen Lord Jesus. Until they appeared to them after his resurrection, until he appeared to them after the resurrection, they had been completely disillusioned and very fearful. Now, during the 40 days that he had met with them, um, as I've looked back on this, I see that their faith has been revived, their hopes have been restored, and the dynamics of the kingdom have been thoroughly explained and maybe more importantly, understood by them. You know that before Jesus does this kind of master class in kingdom teaching, they've got all sorts of ideas and notions. We even saw this morning that they're still not sure when the kingdom's to be brought in in its full power and dynamic. But Jesus explains to them something of that. And they begin to grasp that uh, finally. Now the future looked much brighter than it had done just a month and a half previously. Indeed, 
I want to ascertain that these people had great expectations regarding the way ahead. Uh, Some of you might see other things in this, or even less than I do, but I see four aspects of how their heightened expectations actually had an effect on their day-to-day lives as they waited and as they prepared for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The first thing there is in verse 12 through 14. They trusted one another. Now, from one perspective, this was a fairly motley crew of people who gathered together in that upper room. Among the variety of people who were there were men and women. That can bring its own tensions, just that combination alone. But there were apostles and there were ordinary people. There were even members of the Lord's earthly family. Jesus' own family apparently had not recognized him during his earthly ministry. But uh, again, it appears that they came to trust in him after the resurrection. Or at least some of them did at the stage. Now even his mother Mary was there. But notice that she's participating in worship and prayer along with the others. I make that comment because um, in church history, uh, Mary's role and position is much uh, misunderstood. She's there as simply a member of the body of the church, participating in worship of Jesus, who is head over everything to the church. The center of their fellowship is the risen Christ. And all of them, as I said, including Mary, adored and magnified him. They trusted one another, passionately uniting in a common purpose. There's a key phrase here in understanding the dynamic of this group. It's one that sadly um, isn't always reflected in what we call church today. The key, verses in, uh, the key word, or the, uh, the, the phrase is there in verse 14, and we find it elsewhere in Acts. The, the NIV simply translates it as together, which doesn't really do it justice. The original word uh, in the original language translates with one accord or with one mind. Uh, it means um, simply with one passion. This unique Greek word is used 12 times in the New Testament, but it appears 10 times in the book of Acts. helps us to understand the uniqueness of the Christian community, that they were together with one mind, or as the authorized version translates it, with one accord. And I wonder as we gather tonight as a church, are we here in that same spirit of togetherness? Um, There's a variety of different types of people and different temperaments and different characters and different giftings and different, well, maybe, hopefully not different ideologies. Are we together, passionately, uniting in a common purpose? According to Strong's lexicon, this word is a compound word meaning to rush along in unison. The image is almost musical. A number of notes are sounded which, while different, harmonize in pitch and tone. And as the instruments of the great concert under the direction of the, the concert master, so the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of members of Christ's church. It's an amazing picture. Uh, as the people led us in, in music and worship behind us there, all under the watchful gaze and instruction of Donald, uh, who keeps a tight control on all the music, all, all sorts of different notes were being played, and it all sounded great. But imagine if all these notes just sounded. Have you ever been to the concert that as the, the musicians are warming up and pitching their instruments and tuning them, 
sadly, I think church life can look a little bit like that sometimes, as, as not listening to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Church members just do their own thing and say their own thing, not blended together in that sort of trust where commonly they go forward uh, with one passion. Secondly, they trusted one another. Um, it's not there in the text, but let me lead you through what I'm seeing here, because I believe that they're moving beyond personal grievances and rivalry. Not on a human level. I think we can conjecture that it would be fairly easy for someone to disrupt the harmony of this group and to sow seeds of division among them. It would have been so natural to single out some of these people for preferential treatment. How about Jesus' family, for instance? Or John, the beloved disciple, the one to whom Jesus speaks from the cross and says, uh, Son, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. As that group meet together, that was, I, we heard Jesus say that to us. We're kind of special in this community, aren't we? Or others might have been singled out for particular criticism. How about Peter? He was the one that had led the chorus, as all of them, to a man and said, No, we'll go to death for you. We'll never leave you or abandon you. Yet Jesus, uh, Peter is the one that stands out maybe as the one who failed most. Next to Judas. Or Thomas the doubter. Um, wouldn't it be great to be at church meetings with him and propose an idea? This is the way forward. I doubt it. It would be easy just to sow seeds of division. But you know, there's not one word of argument or rivalry. I think not only do these people have faith in the Lord, but they have faith in each other. This is so different from just weeks before. When on the road, as Jesus is teaching and still drawing the crowds to himself, they're arguing among themselves who's the least and who's the greatest. Who's going to be the most important? Can I have this position in the kingdom? Can I have this position in the kingdom? None of that here in the upper room. They seem to have moved beyond that. Surely that's because of the way that the resurrection has affected their lives. The very fact that Jesus has come back from the dead, that's ultimately the most important thing for them. That he's taught them about the kingdom. That he's going to heaven. And he's going to wait there interceding for them. The Holy Spirit is about to come. And they'll be able to move on into a different dynamic, different dimension of ministry than they've been able to have if that, all that hadn't been in place. It's just quite remarkable when you talk, take note of what had been happening in this community in recent days. You know, as the news of Jesus' trial and crucifixion had taken up the front pages in the reports regarding the behavior the reports regarding the behavior and the fate of Judas Iscariot, uh, that bad news had been buried in the center pages. But even though the news of Judas Iscariot had somehow been lost uh, to the public in terms of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, the news about him um, and his con that the consequences of his actions, nevertheless, must have touched the lives of those who had been associated with him. Now, you'll know what I mean if you've ever been involved in a covenant relationship uh, in marriage or, or some other aspect of relationship, even in church, where you've committed that you're going to be there for each other, you're going to be there and you're going to live together in unity and harmony. And it would have been very easy to understand that some people would have found this very difficult. Quite understandably, some, if not all, of these people that met together in the upper room felt that they had been so badly let down, they would never trust anyone again. 
It's not that terribly long since I was having a conversation with a man who said, I've been hurt so much by in church that I will never, ever be part of the community again. If you're talking about hurt and the breaking up of covenant community, just look what's happened to these people. One of the 11 existing had been Judas Iscariot's evangelism partner. Been out on the road in the towns and the villages, preaching the good news with them, as Judas himself had preached it. Taken what Jesus had said and gone out and acted and had seen people respond. They said they saw the dead raised. They said they saw demons cast out. They said they saw the sick healed. They saw people trust in the Lord as he came towards them. Judas had been part of that group. He had spoken with confidence and power, even as his partner and other disciples had. Yet, you know, that's not the spirit that we see in this grace community that they somehow reject, that because one person or a group of people have let them down, that they're not going to be part of it ever again. The unity displayed here, for me, confirms that that had Judas' behavior affected their emotions, and I believe it must have, it must have affected the way that they will trust people in the future. But it seems here to have been dealt with in the power and the grace that God enabled them to be free to trust again. They also trusted one another moving forward in a spirit of mutual cooperation. I've underlined this for myself in my notes. You know, you and I need to know that what is more important than former participation is continued cooperation. doesn't matter how good you were as a Christian living in the community last week, last month, last year, ten years ago. It's how you're behaving and conducting yourself today that counts. It's how you'll conduct yourself tomorrow in ten years' time that counts. Some years ago I went to um, uh, a funeral of an uncle of mine that had died. Uh, and as far as I know, this uncle had, had never ever shown during the time that I knew him any faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no desire to meet in church and to be part of the missioning community that reached out to lost souls. And at the funeral, uh, this deacon in the church came up to me and he said, Do you know, I just want to encourage you. Because I was at that meeting when your uncle was quite a young boy and when he committed his life to the Lord Jesus. And I just hope that that encourages you. didn't encourage me one little bit. Because it's not how you start that's important. It's how you continue and how you finish. Let us learn this lesson, a solitary lesson for us. That a house that has division within itself cannot stand. Judas had betrayed Christ and received his just reward. He had been one of the twelve. He had participated in the ministry of Christ. And let us heed this warning because none of us are above this, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Scripture says, but he who continues to the end will receive a glorious reward. Do you know God's greater purposes and plans? Are always, are always far more important than the failures and the faults of those who disappoint and hurt us along the way. And maybe I'm speaking just to one person or maybe a group of people who have been really badly let down by someone in the covenant community of God's people. 
as gently as I can and from an understanding, you better believe that I know what I'm talking about. Get over it in the grace that God gives you. But get over it. Come and lay it down and confess it to Jesus. Let his strength empower you again to go forward. Because what lies ahead of you is of far, far greater importance than anything bad that happened back behind you. I'm not talking about the musicians. I'm talking about your way of life. Get over it in the grace that God gives you. Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured out on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, running down on the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there, and I believe in fair than there only, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a place of commanded blessing. And it's where brothers and sisters in unity dwell. Secondly, this group of people trusted in the power of prayer. And we see it there in verses 15, uh, 24 through 25. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. What a friend they have in Jesus. Consider the importance of private and corporate prayer. You know, the, the importance of private and corporate prayer just cannot be stressed enough. Jesus taught his disciples to pray at their request. He instructed them how they should pray. He commanded them to pray. He prayed with them. He prayed for them. He got them to pray for each other. He showed them by his own example the need to spend time in prayer early in the morning, during the day, late at night, all through the night. Prayer is essential if we're to be serious about seeking the Father's will. And obtaining power over the enemy. Building unity among believers. And bringing power of conviction to lost souls. If we don't practice prayer. Then we'll never actually fully know the potential. Or the reality of God's blessing. And verse 14 in our reading says. And they all join together constantly in prayer. Eagerly desirous. Just to pray together whenever they could. Consider the consequences of praying in the will of God. These people had heard the promises Jesus had made, and yet there was no sense of assumption on their part. He says, the Spirit's coming. The kingdom's going to be established. You will be my witnesses from here to the very ends of the earth. Now, they could have concluded, well, that's just great. And left it at that. There's no assumption on their part, even though he had promised. And that's why they engage in persistent Prayer before God. Of course, they're praying in the will of God. And they're not asking God to bless their plans or their programs. And so, therefore, they're going to receive what they're asking for. Someone has said that the first century disciples lived on prayer. We tend to live on either good teaching or conferences or good Christian books. Gets us through, helps us by. But they lived on prayer. Prayer was what got them through temptation, overcame the trials, gets them through the day, gets them looking for the coming blessings of God. It was a natural part of their daily lives. It's an attitude that we see expressed again and again throughout the New Testament. Colossians 4 and 2, devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Ephesians 6 and 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Romans 12 and 12. 
Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17, pray continually, and so on and so forth. I wonder if it's an individual I trusted in the power of prayer, or we collectively as a group of people in Charlotte Chapel trusted in the power of prayer like these early believers did. I wonder if we too would have far greater expectations than we do. And as we see here, coming together to pray is also an effective tool for requesting God's guidance and blessings. Before we come to look at that further, let's consider the third point I want to make from these few verses. In verses 16 to 20, they trusted the word of God. The Holy Spirit, Peter stands up among the 120 believers to speak to them. Now please note that this is not the action of a wannabe leader. Peter's training had not been easy, and neither had it been comfortable. His denial of the Lord for a period of time placed him in almost the same category as Judas. His shame of deserting and failing the Lord certainly was equal to the failure of the other disciples. But what marked this man out as different and truly a candidate for spiritual leadership was his repentance and his honesty. Wasn't his training wasn't his education, wasn't his background, wasn't his assertiveness. It was his repentance and his honesty. Peter's account is therefore given to us of what happened to Judas in verses 17 through 18 and records a slightly different uh, account from that one that we read in Matthew 27. In Matthew's account, it records that Judas hung himself. Peter says that Judas fell headlong, burst open in the middle, and his intestines gushed out. But of course, you know, this, this point of controversy is, uh, is great for those people who call themselves scholars who want to say that the Bible must therefore be disregarded because it contradicts itself. Well, it doesn't take a genius to be able to combine the two passages. Simply suggest that Judas hung on the tree. He hung there for such a long while that what was holding him up actually gave way and that he fell headlong, bursting himself on the ground below once his body had actually deteriorated somewhat. So we take both accounts to be true, and it solemnizes for us um, the story of, of what happened to him. That Judas' behavior, while it may not have rung out any prophetic bells for the chief priests, um, it certainly, by the time the believers were meeting together in the upper room, Peter at least had enough insight to see that all of this had been predicted long ago in God's word. So we see that they also um, then trust God's word in recovering from betrayal and failure. Now we've already touched on the effect of Judas' betrayal of Jesus and his subsequent suicide and what that would have done to the whole group of believers. But as ever, uh, it, it probably affected some more than others. We may think of Judas as an outcast, as a betrayer, as an outsider. But the scriptures tell us that Judas was one of the twelve. The other disciples had a close relationship with this man through Jesus Christ. That must have been very upsetting, to say the least, when people heard what Judas had done, first to Jesus and then to himself. Let this serve as a reminder that church life at times is no rose garden. I'm sure that you don't need me to tell you that some of the stuff that goes on in and around the lives of church members is painful 
It's disturbing. And at times, it's downright treacherous. But in verse 16, Peter points out that the scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. And then he quotes two separate Psalms. Psalm 20, uh, in verse 20, to clarify his statement. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. I don't know about you, but as I read that Psalms, nothing jumped out immediately in thinking that this predicted um, Judas' behavior and his end. It seems more likely to me that David is simply speaking of his own enemies who he's dealing with at the time, And yet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter is able to see how Judas would become an enemy of Jesus. And that David probably unknowingly spoke about it hundreds of years prior to it happening. And as you and I go through the Word of God, we will see that some of the stuff that happened around us, while painful and hurtful and very difficult to understand at the time, may actually have within God's sovereign purposes, revealed in his word to us personally, a place and a purpose in our lives. Someone once encouraged us as a church uh, back home in Orkney to go through Proverbs uh, and to read a chapter a day. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs and in in a month of 31 days, go through it every day. And you know, it was just amazing the number of people that have names that were known to me as I read through Proverbs. Some of the people were wise, some of them were unwise, some of them were incredibly kind, some of them were incredibly cruel. Some of them I worked beside, some of them were in the church. God's word has relevance to us, and we can trust it to have meaning in our lives. So they trusted the word also in reselecting a replacement for Judas. Peter's primary concern was to follow the principles of scripture in replacing Judas, and he suggested that the appointed successor to Judas in the light on necessity revealed in God's word. Some people have um, criticized this decision as being unspiritual. Some say that Peter should have waited for the Holy Spirit's coming. Others have tried to assert that in time, Paul would prove to be the twelfth apostle. I don't believe either of these assertions to be true, and neither do the vast majority of New Testament commentators. As to the necessity for Judas' replacement, maybe you'll find this quote from Warren Weir's be helpful. He says, it was necessary that twelve men witness at Pentecost to the twelve tribes of Israel, and also that twelve men be prepared to sit on the twelve thrones to judge the twelve tribes. From Acts 2 through 7, the witness was primarily to Israel, to the Jew first. But once the message had gone out to the Gentiles, Acts 10 through 11, this Jewish emphasis began to decline. When the Apostle James was martyred, for instance, he was not replaced in Acts 12. Why? Because the official witness to Israel was now complete and the message was going out to Jews and Gentiles alike. One church. There was no more need for twelve apostles to give witness to the twelve tribes of Israel. But here it's right and it's proper. And we see that it was important that the disciples know the scriptures. While awaiting the promise of the Father, the scriptures were being studied. The disciples were united in the knowledge of the scriptures. And Peter shares with this group what the scriptures have revealed to him. Now the place of the word and of prayer is very important to these early believers, even after the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And it ought to be for us too. 
through word and prayer, privately and corporately. Just in passing, can I just mention how blessed we are as a church, uh, particularly with folks like Peter and Colin who consistently bring us God's word, teaching us week in and week out. And can I encourage you, I have no axe to grind in this because I rarely preach so you don't have to go and get my DVDs. But if you miss a sermon, get the DVD, download it from the internet, keep up, see what God's saying to us as a community through his word preached week in, week out. And finally, the fourth point that I want to make is that among these great expectations, they trusted God. I think that is slightly different from trusting prayer and trusting the word. In verses 21 through 22, Peter spells out the requirements that are needed to be um, considered in finding Judah's successor as an apostle. Now, there are three qualifications that, that for me, just puts uh, the apostle Paul as one abnormally born completely out of the picture. Uh, The essential qualifications of an apostle are, first of all, the man must have accompanied the apostles during the whole ministry of Jesus. Secondly, that man must have been with Jesus from the beginning of John's baptism to the moment that he was taken up from them just a few days earlier. And third, that man must have been a witness to the resurrected Jesus. It was critical because these apostles would go forth into all the world proclaiming that they had seen the risen Lord. Now, two men matched the requirements and they were selected as possible candidates to replace Judas' position. The two men, Joseph, who was called Barsabbas, and Justice, and also a man called Matthias. Now, please note that the final part of this process is neither democratic nor autocratic. The process is rather theocratic, if you will which proves that these people trusted in the indisputable sovereignty of Almighty God. God is given the final say as the apostles and the other disciples turn again to God in prayer. Please note the wisdom of the content of this prayer. Only God knows the hearts of these men. So rather than turn the appointment, the election, or the reselection, however you want to call it, into a popularity contest, or indeed a contest of any description, uh, this group of people cast lots. Now, these two men are equally qualified. Uh, and it's there's really, from a human perspective, nothing to choose between the two. So they cast lots. Some commentators have suggested that this would have been done by writing the names of two men on stones and uh, putting the stones into a jar with a hole in the bottom and it would have been turned until one stone fell out indicating the choice where, that they were to go with. However it was done, the lot falls to Matthias. Now the casting of lots was done throughout the Old Testament as a tool God used for people to know his will. But this is the last time in Scripture that we see lots cast. Um, you know I can be a tad towards the flippant side sometimes, and I thought, uh, somebody's going to ask the question on the way out, so can we still use lots today, or that sort of thing, and I was going to tell you that I wasn't sure, so I flipped the coin and decided not. Um, But that is, like I said, towards that flippant end of my nature. But we see this is the last time that it's done in Scripture. You see, after the Holy Spirit comes... And people are able to discern God's will from the least to the greatest. 
There's no need to cast lots. You and I know what the Holy Spirit's saying to us and prompting us to do. We know when we're at peace about something and when we're at disquiet about something for the future. God has given you imagination. I would love to take the time to teach you how to use that and to weigh up something in the Spirit. Should I do this or should I do that? God will grant you peace over whatever is right for your life. That peace will will never come at the expense of 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 a scriptural principle. But the peace from the Holy Spirit will guard your hearts and minds as you go forward knowing what, how God is guiding you. So God's Holy Spirit now indwells every believer and gives gifts to all of Christ's followers. And we're going to be learning much more about that in the weeks and months to come. So in conclusion then, I know I said and finally, but this is in conclusion. Living in the light of the Spirit's coming, what are our expectations like? Do we readily trust other people? Have you... Maybe like me, being hurt so badly at times, you thought you'd never trust again. Do we believe that prayer really makes all the difference? And do we know God's word well enough for it to be able to guide our actions and our principles? And do we trust the sovereign purposes of God for whatever comes our way in life? And do we, or do we make things happen for ourselves? Well, only you can answer that question for yourself. I trust God gives you the courage and strength to do so. As we prepare to come around the Lord's table, we're going to stand and we're going to